Welcome to Strike Up the Conversation on Post Show Recaps, a podcast bringing you coverage of the labor disputes no longer happening in television and film. I am Dr. Amanda, and I am your host for these conversations. Today, I am joined once again by my great friend, Zed, to talk about the deal that SAG-AFTRA has now struck with the AMPTP. This is our best, last, and final podcast in the Strike Up series. Um, Zed, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I'm really excited to talk about the deal that has been struck, what we know about it, which is still limited at this time, but Mm -hmm. also especially to talk about the broader implications of all of the conversations that you've had over the last many months at this point Mm -hmm. and what's going to come next in the industry and in general for like the American workforce, I think is really huge so I'm very yeah. excited to yeah thank it. you for joining I can't think of a better guest to come on and do this wrap up with me um a true labor organizer yourself and somebody who has been I know following this really really closely it's very bittersweet to bring this series to the end I'm thrilled that the actors have reached an agreement we'll talk a little bit about just the broader economic impact of what has happened for people working in this injure this industry and any sort of adjacent workers in the economy of uh, the U.S. and uh, California specifically. So I'm really, really glad there's a resolution there. But um, it's been such a joy and a privilege to do this coverage for post show recaps to delve into this topic to bring light to the human labor that goes into all of the television and film that we love that we enjoy that we revel over dissecting here on our network so i've really really cherished my time as an ambassador of those issues. Um, We are going to be stopping doing weekly coverage of the strike. That is not to say that we might not come back in this feed at some point in the future to pop in with different topics as that seems relevant, as there's a need to do that. Um, I had a, I've, you know, always had a few different ideas for things, topics that we could talk about in this series. And I don't think post-show recaps is done uh, shining a light on these issues. But for now, at least we're going to be um, putting this series uh, on on pause um, because the strikes have ended after the longest strike in history by actors against the film and TV studios. 118 days, Ed. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. It's been really, really hard. I I am not a sag after member myself, but I have lots and lots of friends who are um, and I have seen them in the struggle and been with them in there. I can't, I did this project and I can't talk about it mm-hmm. and it's not happening because we can't talk about it. Um, the delays that have happened to all of this work that all of these artists have put so much time and effort and money and more time <laughs> into. Um, but it is just so exhilarating to see what happens when people really hold the line and mm-hmm. stick together. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this, but like last best and fi- you can't have a last best and final <laughs> offer to an entire industry. Like, what are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. Just, yeah. So, so if they if the actors say no, then you just won't you just won't have actors like what you really come to see who has the power and the leverage if we stick together these companies would be nowhere and they were going to be nowhere. 
Yeah. So the last best and final title of this podcast is a little bit tongue in cheek. And this comes from the fact that the AMPTP came to SAG-AFTRA with a couple last best and final offers along the way. The process has been really contentious. I mean, we talked about this with the writers um, at the conclusion of the writer's strike. So they wrapped up their strike um, back last month after striking for 146 days. Um, at that point, and they, you know, had a really strong uh, victory, I think, in the contract that they were able to secure. And um, at first blush, I thought that that, uh, that, that represented a um, the will from the studios to get everybody back to work. But they still did hem and haw and drag their feet a little bit with the actors. Um, I sort of cynically thought that because of the production pipeline, they knew that they had a little more runway while the writers were, um, you know, getting their scripts ready before they had to put new things into production. So they probably had a drop dead date in their mind and they were just going to wait and wait and wait until that day came. Um, so maybe that's what happened. Um, but it seems like there was somewhat of a little bit more fire and contention um, with the actors along the way. Um, and I have to, you know, give major props to my uh, my new hero, somebody I've always loved, but I have only grown to love more, Fran Drescher. She is like the hottest commodity in Hollywood right now among people in the industry, for sure, because uh, we have certainly seen her speak out for everyone in the industry represented and not by the union and was not going to take any BS from these extremely powerful, terrible white men. Um, and so absolutely everybody's hero these days. And I think we can talk about how, you know, the work that she put in as the union's president and the, like the representation, the face of actors at this point in time, uh, can really be a model for other industries moving forward. Yeah. So some fun anecdotes about Fran Drescher that have come out along the way. Um, you know, she definitely did not uh, kowtow to a certain model of what leadership looks like. Um, you know, she famously brought a toy plushie to one of her negotiations with the studios. She called Bob Iger an ignoramus. Um, she said, you know, she would often start her meetings with a Buddhist saying or telling a story. So I think that, you know, she's she's really uh, owned this national platform that the strike has has given her. And I think it's a real testimony to her leadership that she was able to, um, you know, hold it's you know, it's not easy to keep people strong in solidarity over months and months without work. Yeah, absolutely. It has been, a, you know, a, as you say, many months, a long time with no employment. You Like, you can't work. You are not allowed to work because mm -hmm. uh, there is nothing worse you can be than a scab. Um, and it is a lot of showing up to picket lines at nine in the morning uh, mm -hmm. in the peak summer heat, especially in L.A., but also here in New York. Uh, and then moving into the fall and dealing with colder weather and still showing up. Um, but everybody held strong knowing that we were on this precipice of if we didn't push for absolutely everything we could get right now, you know, it was going to probably be a generation before mm -hmm. there was really the momentum and will and opportunity to to get these kinds of wins in the contract. Yeah. 
So let's talk about what uh, what the unions did uh, secure here in this contract. And I will say that this is a tentative agreement. So um, the board of the of SAG-AFTRA voted uh, at 86%, I think, of the 75-member board, something like that, yes, to, to put this contract before the membership for the ratification process, which will start on Tuesday. So that vote happened on November 8th. Uh, Zed and I are talking here on Sunday, November 12th. On Tuesday, the ratification process will begin, and that might take several weeks to get the votes in from the full membership of SAG-AFTRA to determine whether they will accept that contract. Um, the, uh, you know, we all anticipate that they will accept the contract. And because there is a tentative agreement in place, the strike is over and actors can resume work immediately. Um, so that's where we are in the process. And the agreement, I have, you know, I have not seen the full agreement, but I have read SAG's summary of the agreement and I have listened to um, some interviews and read some interviews with Duncan Crabtree Ireland with Fran Drescher describing what uh, has been what what the agreement um, what the agreement entails. Um, so we can talk through some of that. The high points are that um, they they uh, they got protections from AI. We're going to kind of dive a little bit more deeply into what that means. Higher minimum pay better healthcare funding, and um, concessions about self-taped auditions. One of the things that came out in dis our discussions with uh, SAG-AFTRA members is just how much cost and effort that is uncompensated goes into um, auditioning, preparing your own hair and wardrobe and all of that. this. So um, protections against that, improved hair and makeup services on set that are geared towards better equity and inclusion, um, and a requirement for intimacy coordinators for sex scenes, among other gains. So um, wage increases. This is always a big part of contract negotiations. Um, one of the things that we've talked about with our uh, guild members early on is like, you know, just how much some of these other issues can seem uh, like a distraction when really people being able to make a living wage is one of the most important um, fair compensation for labor is really at the heart of all of these labor issues. Um, so according to the SAG-AFTRA summary, the agreement includes an unprecedented wage pattern with two wage increases in the first year of the contract. So 7% immediately, and then another 4% increase that will happen in 2024 um, for a compounded increase of 11.28%, which is, um, I was watch looking at some of the wage increase data over time um, with SAG-AFTRA and their wage increases have not kept place with inflation. And this is even inflation before the current state of the inflationary boom that we're in right now. So this feels, Zed, like a meaningful gain. Yeah, um, and it can, we can note that specifically uh, background actors get that 11% increase literally starting today as we right. are talking while they figure out the rest of the agreement and ratify the terms or, or not. Uh, that wage increase starts immediately. And then all of the other ones have dates where they go into effect. And if 
if they are supposed to go into effect before the contract gets ratified, those increases will be retroactively paid, which mm-hmm. is really important. Uh, delaying the ratification does not impact that payment. I, it impacts the immediate payment, but the money will come eventually. Uh, and that's a really big deal. You know, I speak as a member of a union as well, and our mm-hmm. contract is pretty much always only ever a 3% annual increase. I won't call it a raise because it's not a raise. No. It's not keeping up with inflation. Fundamentally, it is barely covering the cost of my rent going up. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's not the only thing I have to pay for. So if it sounds like a lot, you know, consider how much you're out there, your expenses have gone up over the last couple of years. And, and, sag after is coming from a position of not having had significant wage increases in a really long time. Yeah, exactly. This wage increase has to do the work of making up for like literally decades of wage loss and shrinkage uh, in relationship to what the value of work is in today's dollars. So um, this is a great gain. And I love seeing that there is a more substantial gain for background actors. We talked to Mary Flynn earlier in this series. And, you know, when we think of SAG-AFTRA, we think about, you know, the Fran Dreschers and the George Clooney's and the Jennifer Lawrence's who, uh, you know, are household names. But the majority of this union is made up of these background actors who are very much working class, who have not been making a living wage, a lot of people even below the poverty line. And um, this is also, um, there's also another... um, provision in the agreement that would expand the number of covered positions. So we learned from Mary Flynn that there's a certain number of union background actors that you need to include. And then once you reach that threshold, you can include non-union background actors. So this is going to increase covered positions, add almost 11,000 new covered background work days annually. Um, So this is only going to expand uh, protections within that labor force. Yeah, that's really huge. Uh, I, as I was reading the summary of the agreement, I literally, and again, I am not a SAG member, but I got like emotional mm. reading about it because there is clearly this very specific focus on pulling everybody up to a more equitable, mm-hmm. you know, way of life of being able to survive in this industry because you need those background actors. You need all these people not just the stars to make a movie. And so it is critical that that is a sustainable job for somebody to have. And so there's a a number of um, points that are addressed in the summary of the contract discussing, you know, middle-class actors. And I would say there's a lot of people who are not even middle-class actors, uh, but making sure that they are getting a bigger share of, of the work and of the benefits of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So the other meat and potatoes issue here that, uh, you know, as I'm calling it, so these are kind of the issues that are important in almost every segment of the labor market, um, wage increases and contributions to health and retirement. Funds. So um, a nearly 43% increase to the contribution cap for one-hour productions and 67% increase to the cap for half-hour productions um, will result in increased contributions to health and pension retirement funds, as well as help performers working on these shows to continue qualifying for benefit coverage. And um, again, this is 
incredibly important because as you know, everybody knows um, the cost of healthcare in this country is completely exorbitant and without coverage, uh, you know, people can barely keep up with just their uh, usual preventative care, let alone if they have any medical issues that need to be taken care of. So um, we've, you know, talked about how so many workers in these unions don't make the uh, minimum to qualify for benefit coverage. Um, this will make some inroads there and also increase the contribution caps so that they can um, have, you know, better pay-ins to those funds. So um, this is also a win, Zed. Right. So if this feels very in the weeds to you, uh, you'll probably recall at least that there was a, a time where a series of A-listers were like, well, what if we just mm -hmm. remove the cap so that we can contribute more of our like more of our income to yeah. dues. George and Clooney, that, Ben Affleck yeah. led this led this proposal. Um, yeah. And Fran Drescher was like, that's cute, but please sit down. That is irrelevant to what we're talking about because the money for these funds has to come from the employers, from the studios, from the streamers. Very often that's the same group at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but so raising these contribution caps as like, you know, nerdy and, and technical as that sounds, fundamentally what that means is these productions are going to be contributing significantly more money into the fund to cover healthcare and retirement for everybody in the industry, well, for everybody in the union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we don't need George Clooney to save us all. We just need organized. Very well-intentioned, very yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and yeah. And I think that, that that was like, you know, a genuine act of, you know, good intentions there on their part. But like, this is yeah. really we, such a know, misread of like how this works. Right. Um, so, okay. Going into more of like um, the kind of existential issues that affect uh, labor in the entertainment industry specifically, a big part of what was at stake in this round of negotiations was um, the AI and profit sharing issues. So the way that streaming has changed the landscape of the industry, the way that AI is exploding and providing all of these potential ways that uh, labor can be undervalued and undercut. Like these were the issues that were really sort of red hot in this negotiation. Um, you might remember in terms of the profit sharing. So this is the issue that basically if you are an actor on Orange is the New Black and that's a hit show for Netflix that drives subscriptions, that gets more views than Game of Thrones, um, there's you you get what you were paid to perform in the show, but your residuals were kind of laughably small. And um, the actress, the actor who played Brooke, and I can't, I'm forgetting her name right now. Um, I will look that up, had a viral TikTok opening up her um, residual checks. And um, this was like one of these issues that and this is important because this fundamentally changed the industry. It used to be that if you were, you know, Jennifer Aniston and you appeared on Friends, uh, you got paid to do the work that you did. But then as that show went into syndication and continued to generate advertising revenue 
for those networks, you had a share in the success of your product because, you know, NBC was using that to sell, um, you know, laundry detergent. And so right. for every unit of laundry detergent, you deserved a little bit of that profit. So this is, and this is always how the industry works because work is sporadic uh, as an actor and um, jobs are, uh, for a limited period of time. So the residual model is really what made this a viable career. Um, so uh, this issue of profit sharing got completely upended by residuals where instead of an advertising-based revenue model, streamers were uh, focused on a subscription revenue model. We'll talk about that later in the podcast because this is the question, you know, whether this is a viable business model, I think it's still very, very much up in the air. Um, but there was no longer a mechanism for uh, performers and writers and uh, to have a stake in the success of their show. Um, the first attempt at this, the proposal from SAG-AFTRA was a... Um, there was they 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 proposed um i don't know brooke do you, uh said do you remember what this was this 57 cents like i they they had some proposal that um earlier in the negotiation that um that the studio said was a bridge too far um but as a compromise as a compromise there's every a, proposal earlier in the yeah, yeah yeah i'm sorry i i will i will pull that up at some point in our conversation but um the so oh i'm sorry and then it's uh it's kamiko glenn who played brooke sosa on orange is the new black um but the agreement that the union achieved is the creation of a new compensation stream for performers and streaming um so there's a bonus on top of the existing residual structure to make streaming work more sustainable. So um, the majority of the compensation will be paid to actors that meet a viewership threshold. So I think that there is like a 20% threshold that's been introduced and um, then their remaining money will be distributed to other actors working on those streaming platforms through a distribution fund. So um, this part of the profit sharing agreement also added fixed residuals for stunt coordinators. So this is a little bit complicated and it's not exactly what the actors uh, had originally wanted. Um, but this was an attempt to create a completely new rubric for at least imposing something on streaming that allowed for profit sharing. Right, because this didn't really exist in the contract for so long because it didn't exist as a media format for so long. Mm -hmm. And as with laws, contracts also always lag behind technology significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and a and a big issue that was kind of raised around streaming and profit sharing is the lack of transparency. You know, we've we've talked or you've talked on the podcast in the past mm -hmm. about like the Nielsen ratings, uh, which I'm sure is a thing. Mm -hmm. People of Gen Z don't even know what that is. Um, but that used to be measurement of viewers. It's still used. It just doesn't fully accurately reflect viewership of shows anymore because mm -hmm. there are so many different ways to watch content. Um, but as as you know, products have diversified into different platforms, it's more difficult to track what the viewership actually is of a show or a product. 
Um, and streamers have kind of tried to plead the fifth and be like, oh, we can't possibly know who's watching these things on our proprietary platforms that we have mm-hmm. every single piece of your personal data from your whole life about. Oh, uh, we don't, we just, we couldn't possibly tell you how many people are watching this show that is ranked number one on our platform, <laughs> according to Netflix. Uh, so this is a, at least a, a significant step in the right direction of acknowledging that streaming is kind of akin to syndication in the 21st yeah. century in terms of the, the show just always being available and people watching it in perpetuity until they pull it off of the network so that they don't have to pay actors royalties for it, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the original sag after proposal was 57 cents per subscriber fee. So that was what they were arguing to go into this fund to distribute for profit sharing with the performers. Um, but um, this was um, this was rejected roundly by the AMPTP. Um, they, they, they said that this was completely untenable. So the streaming bonus uh, structure that they uh, have achieved in this agreement is modeled on terms that are similar to what the Writers Guild achieved. Um, and it's a uh, you're you you the threshold for a successful show is one that attracts views amounting to the equivalent of 20% of the platform's subscriber base in the first 90 days so um this is like a very very small percentage of shows that are going to meet that threshold we'll talk about like the absolute explosion of streaming uh, content that's available but this is going to be very few sh- shows that actually reach this uh, 20% threshold. But the idea is that there's going to be this fund that also then distributes uh, profit sharing uh, revenue to the other performers that are also working on that platform. Um, so again, like this is creating a model. It was important to do this. Um, how this is going to actually affect uh, actors We'll see uh, as, you know, this the terms of this deal actually play out. But this was a step towards creating a profit sharing, uh, a profit sharing structure that just was not in place. Right. It is creating the like initial recognition, essentially, Mm -hmm. that people deserve to be paid for viewership on streaming platforms, especially as shows originate there and just don't exist on traditional network Mm -hmm. television at all. Um, and so it's it is huge to get this into the contract as like, you know, a foundational pillar at this point that then can be built upon in further contracts, because this contract is for three years. You know, neg- contracts come up for negotiations every few years. And it is this was the moment to do the really big push. And it seems like a lot of really significant things have been put in this contract. Mm-hmm. And then that can continue to be worked on in details in future negotiations. Uh, the 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 other big existential issue at the heart of this contract was, of course, AI. And, um, you know, so this is, again, like, as, as I've said, I haven't seen the actual term. So it's hard for me to speak to whether, you know, how sufficient these protections are. Um, you know, we went from from not acknowledging AI at all to at least having something 
in the contract that um that addresses it. So I think that that's a big that's a big win. But um according to the deal, at least from the summary that we have from SAG AFTRA, companies must request consent before making digital replicas of actors and much must disclose what the replica will be used for. Um, and there's also a provision for actors to receive compensation for digital replicas. And this feels like a uh, bare minimum of what is absolutely needed in order to protect the work of actors. Yeah, we talked just a little bit before we started recording here about this kind of feeling like the biggest asterisk to the contract being a complete and total win for mm -hmm. the actors is this sort of caveat around the digital double and what mm -hmm. that means and what that can be used for. Um, I'll be curious to see if and when this contract is ratified, uh, how studios kind of try to use that to pressure people into making agreements that they might not necessarily want to make. Like if you're not willing to check that consent box, mm -hmm. does that mean you're not getting jobs? Um, I don't know. You know, the the membership is having an informational meeting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we are certainly operating on less than complete uh, knowledge of the details. But I know that is something that uh, SAG friends of mine have spoken up about being concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's... <laughs> The, if there there are always loopholes and the bosses are always going to find ways to exploit them. So that is a concern. There's sort of two issues with the AI piece here, Zed. One of them is, will the studio use AI to create a digital Gwyneth Paltrow? And then just like have Gwyneth Paltrow work for one day right. and then populate the whole movie with Gwyneth Paltrow based on a digitally um, generated replica. That's the first issue. The other issue is creating synthetic performers that's not supposed to be any person specifically, but is going to represent an amalgam of other reporter of other performers. And both of these are these are sort of separate issues, um, and I think that there's an extremely slippery slope with the latter. And there's two um, there's two ways that labor can be exploited in the latter case. Um, first of all, without um, you know, you can have your features or your voice or your mannerisms. Uh, fed into generating a synthetic performer um, without having attribution or credit or getting compensation. So that is a potential issue there. Um, the other issue with the synthetic performer is, of course, the synthetic performer could get a job that would have gone to a human. So it is shrinking the labor market and stealing jobs from people. So what is in this new contract is a provision that requires companies to get consent of performers whose facial features are used as part of the creator creation of such a synthetic. Um, the rules will also apply to deceased actors. So heirs or beneficiaries must be contacted. It's going to be interesting, like to see if we have, you know, this, what's the statute of limitation? Are we going to have a bunch of Humphrey Bogarts like walking or, right. around? Do people like, screen? you know, die and then age into the like common, right? <laughs> like the, you're out of copyright law. Um, And there are also 
some guidelines around synthetic fakes who are based on the image or likeness of an actor, which is used to train generative AI and SAG-AFTRA has the right to be notified. So um, it doesn't look like, so this is where I think that I've seen more controversy over uh, satisfaction with these terms among members of the guild. So um, first of all, there's this issue of, you know, how coercive will this consent be like will this can like will this um provision of consent be used to deny work from people who are not willing to give it um consent is like as i think we've been saying from the beginning the like it feels like the absolute bare minimum of what should be on the table to protect performers. Um, but Justine Bateman notably has, um, who I'll say also has a degree in computer science and has really been at the forefront of tracking this issue as somebody who is, um, you know, a member of SAG-AFTRA, a member of the WGA, a director, um, you know, very much a part of this industry. Um, and her concern is really that um, unlike what the DGA got and the WGA got in their deal, which was a definition that a writer is a human being, a definition that a director is a human being, um, this agreement allows for these synthetic performers to be an entity that is not a human entity. So this is like letting, so to, in her mind, at least to summarize Justine Bateman's position, this is opening the door for non-human performers to be kind of recognized as a, uh, as a reasonable use of, uh, of, of, populating a film or television show without uh, actually hiring a human being. Right. That's a concern. Uh, and then additionally, it, there is the concern of alteration of the human beings that are being paid to be in mm -hmm. the work initially. Um, she posted on Instagram just yesterday uh, under the quote, digital double, use other than in motion picture for which the performer was employed, it says that, quote, no additional compensation shall be required for use of an employment-based digital replica that was created in connection with the employment of a performer who was employed under Schedule F. So if you're paid under this specific agreement and they need to make alter or need choose to make alterations to you as a performer for future use, they can just do that. And then it's not you anymore. It's your digital double and they don't have to pay that, you know, that other version of you essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, there's a, there's, there, there, there are still concerns here. I will say that, um, you know, that, 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 from what I've heard in Fran Drescher's interview, the way she represented is she that the that the guild got whatever they thought they could get to protect their members for the duration of this contract and also has requested twice annual meetings to continue to monitor the pace of AI because obviously the technology continues to develop. But, um, you know, this is, again, something that I think we're going to have to deal with in a lot of different industries, how exactly AI 
can be used and what impact it has on potentially uh, affecting human human labor markets. Um, so we have the seed of this here. Um, again, like the writers and the directors have also dealt with this, but of course we have not heard the end of this issue. Yeah, absolutely. As I think I said the last time I was on, you know, AI and computers can do a lot of really great things to help reduce the labor that we have to do. Mm -hmm. But that shouldn't mean that it is reducing our wages or the labor that we want to do and be involved in, or that we are uh, suddenly being involved in things essentially without our notice or consent. You sign one initial consent. You talked about this, I think, on the previous podcast with Gabby, that like we mm -hmm. all sign all these, you know, terms yeah. of service. And yes, I've read the thing that I absolutely did not read because it's a hundred pages long <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's on my phone in teeny tiny print. Um, I, I would expect that actors are reading these contracts more closely mm -hmm. than yes, I want to buy this app. Um, but it is still, I, I do really, that was one of my immediate thoughts is, okay, well, if you don't, consent to this specific provision in the contract are you not getting the work and if work is dependent on consent it's not actually consent right right so um we'll we'll continue to track how that all how that all um ends up playing out and whether these like the provision of continued meetings to evaluate it if that really is meaningful like again this is what this is the moment when the workers have leverage and they're not going to have leverage between contracts um at all so um this is the time um this was the time to get as much as they could i think that you know fran drescher and duncan crabtree ireland believe that they did that the best that they could for their guilds but um with any of these new technologies, it takes time to really feel out what are the loopholes and how thorough the protections can be. And we're all sort of learning this as we go. Um, just to quickly mention other wins in this contract, uh, Heron Makeup Equity, as we mentioned, um, important gains there, sharing aggregate diversity statistics eliminating inappropriate wiggings and paint downs, gender neutral language, access to gender affirming care and translation services, more sexual harassment prevention protections for performers, including the use of intimacy coordinators um, and additional safeguards for uh, background. So, you know, this is extremely important. Um, and we've had our guild members speak to some of these issues. Um, so this is another important win in this contract. Absolutely. You know, we talk about the general broad, people are going to make more money, uh, which is great. And within that, it needs to be a place that is safe for everyone to work. Mm -hmm. And what eliminating the like, you know, psychological or emotional cost of, okay, I'm going to make this money, but at what cost if I'm going to have to show up to a makeup artist that doesn't know how to work with my skin tone or with wigs that were not made appropriately for my ethnicity, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of us don't think about that kind of stuff. We're just like, yeah, it'll be right because this is professional. And mm -hmm. that is not at all the case. Um, and seeing the huge increase in the prevalence of intimacy coordinators on sets is a really, really big deal. Um, I do want to commend HBO for kind of like piloting that in the industry mm. really uh, I have a friend who's been an intimacy coordinator on a lot of HBO shows and I think they may have been the first like major 
network content mm-hmm. creator, unclear mm-hmm. what I should call it at this mm-hmm. point, uh, to say we will have intimacy coordinators on all of our shows, on everything that we do um, before that was required, before that was a given. Um, and so for that to be increasing across the industry is huge for the safety and you know comfort of everybody involved. Um, yeah, really important win there. Um, and the the guild also won um, higher minimums, um, which is great. And also um, improvements in relocation allowances. And, you know, our guild members um, that we've interviewed on this series, like Michael Chernis and Linda Powell, like really just pointed out how relocation isn't what it used to be. People like don't move their whole family to a location where they can stay for several years because they're on a series that films 22 episodes a year and where they had they have some, you know, expectation that it'll air for multiple seasons. People have to go and film six, 10 episode runs of something and they're not going to move. They're not going to relocate their whole family. So it's a completely different game now um and um you know this will help offset what had become a, an individual financial burden for performers to travel back and forth to sets for these uh gigs right to essentially be living you know renting somewhere for mm-hmm. two months or something while you're filming uh and, and maintaining all of- a completely separate home somewhere else absolutely maintaining w- your life wherever mm-hmm. your life is uh, but then traveling on your own money to a location, renting a place on your own money. And then, you know, are you stocking up on food and cooking? Do you have time to cook? Are you eating out every day because you're not at home in your own kitchen? Like, is a per diem keeping up with how much expense there is to not living at home? Uh, probably not. Um, and so as as you have in the notes from the from the summary, uh, this the the updated um stipends for relocation or the updated allowances is 153% effective increase in the relocation Mm -hmm. payments. Like that is huge, especially when the cost of living has gone up so dramatically and the price of renting, I can say from experience has skyrocketed in the last few years. Yeah. Unbelievable. And we like learned from, I mean, Michael Turner spoke to this and other uh, guests on this series spoke to this, but like a lot of performers lose money on gigs because they see it as, oh, this could be potentially career launching and this is how much I'm getting paid and this is like the small amount that I'm going to get paid to relocate. it. But then I'm also like flying back and forth there because this is filming in like North Dakota and I'm renting and I'm doing this. And at the end of the day, like maybe my net income from that entire project is like $150, but it's considered like, this is such an important career opportunity that I have to do it. If you add on top of that, the costs of, you know, auditioning, like, uh, you know, providing in a lot of cases your own wardrobe and these other mm-hmm. issues um you know there's a lot of gigs that might seem like dream jobs that end up uh having people operate at a loss yeah i mean having produced my own plays in new york city a handful of times it is very much a i want to do this for creative reasons and hopefully it will help expand my artistic network it is not going to make me mm-hmm. any money 
Um, and on the larger scale of film and television and these Hollywood jobs, it, it can be like, a, okay, if I break even, then the profit comes from our favorite word exposure. And hopefully that leads to a job that will actually make me some money. But in the meantime, the goal is just to not be actively operating at a loss. And that becomes continually more and more of a challenge as everything gets more expensive and wages don't keep up with that. It's just a great opportunity, Zed. It's a great opportunity. Um, yeah, well, I'll just tell my landlord that I have a great opportunity and uh, I'm sure they'll be understanding and mm -hmm. not need money. Yeah. Yeah. Opportunity doesn't pay the medical bills or uh, or the grocery bills. Um, so um very, very meaningful wins in this in this new contract. Of course, like this is the um, SAG-AFTRA summary that we're working off of, and the negotiating committee and the leadership is certainly trying to present a very positive message about this. Um, this will be voted for ratification probably through the month of November and into December before we have a fully ratified contract. Um, but I mean, it's amazing, Zed, that, you know, it took this long to get here. And, uh, and we're pointing out that there's probably still ways that this is not fully what the actors were hoping for, uh, especially in terms of uh, profit sharing. And in terms of AI, their strongest proposals were rejected, but after 118 days, uh, clearly meaningful gains. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of a broader conclusion that I wanted to draw about this beyond just uh, the film and television industry is the idea that companies will always say something is unreasonable and impossible until they have no other option. You know, so much of what is in this contract two months ago CEOs of these streamers were saying was absolutely unreasonable, impossible, couldn't be done, would be destroying these billion dollar companies because actors were asking for, you know, a 0.01% of their profit margin. Uh, and you just keep pushing until they have no option. But to say, okay, sure, yeah, that thing that we said was impossible, I guess maybe we could, we could definitely do that. Um, and that happened here in a number of ways. And I think that's something to carry forward into further labor organizing in whatever industry mm -hmm. you're in out there listening to or whatever the next big strike is that's coming. You know, UAW was just going on strike the last yeah. time I was on this podcast and their strike is coming to a conclusion, mm -hmm. it seems like, with some really meaningful uh, wage increases, among other things, for the auto workers. Um and again, you know, every comp company will just say, we can't do that. We can't afford to do that. That is an unreasonable ask. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, it is such a bottom line, basic request that is coming in so many of these contract negotiations that as long as you stand firm in believing that what you are fighting for is justified, you will get it because the companies don't have a choice. You mm -hmm. are costing them so much money by withholding your labor. You are so valuable in that way. And I think that's critical for all workers to remember. 
Yeah, it, it was an incredible show of solidarity and the dual strikes and the support that the WGA and sag After had for one another is a really powerful part of this story. Um, it does make you wonder, you know, the DGA, uh, they had, uh, they finalized their agreement in June. Um, you know, what could, could this have been like a fully unified front that could have really gone even further in transforming the industry? Um We'll never know, but the the show of solidarity here and um, the absolute uh, gains that come from that is really impressive in this case. Um, you mentioned Zed that the uh, that these strikes cost the studios lots of money. Um, they affected the uh, the economy broadly because it's not only those guilds who were out of work; it was also all of the other workers in entertainment who were out of work. It was also the other businesses then and workers that thrive off of the Hollywood entertainment industry. So thinking about the economy in LA, things like, you know, restaurant workers and, um, you know, and all of this other labor catering companies. Exactly. Yeah. Everything yeah. like everything that gets affected, you know, we talked to, um, Naomi Calhoun in this series about production assistance and like realizing like, yeah, they're, they're calling car services, they're booking hotels, they're, you know, all of they're ordering lunch, they're doing all of these other things. And when work stops, all of those other segments of the labor market are affected. Um, the quotes that I've seen in uh, the press uh, range from $6 billion to $10 billion in losses nationwide with, um, you know, a large share of that, more than half of it affecting the economy of the state of California. Um, and this is like not like you turn, a, you flip a switch and overnight um, all of that, you know, vibrancy comes back. It can take months for businesses and workers to get back on track and figure out if they can stay afloat in the wake of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I also mentioned the last time I was on the podcast working in Midtown in in the mm -hmm. the theater district in New York and the, you know, all of the restaurants and fast food chains and, you know, Walgreens and other pharmacies that whose hours had shifted dramatically in the pandemic because people were not coming to the theater, not coming to the offices. Mm -hmm. It was a ghost town. I was there a few times, you know, and there was just nobody around. And still three years later, a lot of those businesses have not gone back to the hours they had before the pandemic because there still is just not the same, you know, foot traffic that there mm -hmm. used to be with that dramatic shift to work from home, there's a lot of jobs that are not happening in the same place. And all of these things are interconnected. You know, a, a film set is its own kind of little universe mm -hmm. that has its own economy that supports all these different businesses, as you were saying. And so when that little universe gets shut down, all of the things that that city needs, it doesn't need anymore. And so there is then suddenly this surplus of, resources and labor with nowhere to go and businesses have to adjust their own bottom lines based on the reality of the situation and you can't just suddenly reacquire mm -hmm. the the resources or the labor force that you had if you had to cut back based on the reality of the situation at the time 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, let's talk about LA as a case study. Now, like you and I are both on the East Coast. So, um, you know, pretty far removed. And I know that like the economy in New York City is also very much affected by what's happening in entertainment. But LA is really like a town that exists for Hollywood. I mean, we call it Hollywood. We call the whole yeah. film industry <laughs> a place in Los Angeles. Um, and this is an economy that, you know, weathered the pandemic, which obviously had a huge economic impact. And then as the we're kind of slowly coming out of that economic effect, having these dual strikes is like a second punch. You know, this is there's a huge homelessness issue in LA. Uh, affordable housing is a problem across the entire United States and Canada. I was just talking to Grace about this because we're covering the curse now. Um, and um, you know, this is like this. Th we're, we are going to feel the ripple effects. I think of this uh, stretch from 2020 through to 2023 on the economy, especially concentrated in these regions. Um, you know, there's also, you know, once the kind of the spigot now that we've kind of, uh, you know, can start the trickle trickle of producing new shows, um, it's going to take a while for, uh, for the output and the profits to follow. Obviously, there's going to be the time in the production cycle, lots of things that were ready to be released uh, have been delayed. Um, lots of productions are, so we might be looking at another two years before we start to see uh, ec economically Hollywood in particular, but then also these other industries, these other uh, economies, local economies that are so dependent on a vibrant film and TV industry coming back to what would be like their pre-pandemic standard. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know lots of films were pushed like the marvel universe schedule mm -hmm. is so public about when all of the movies are going to come out do to shift a bunch of things around um as a result yeah. of these strikes uh and that's true for much smaller things too mm -hmm. impacts you know the smaller the production studio or the smaller the the business the larger those effects are going to be yeah felt, the less resilient smaller percentage yes. yeah um so, you know, economically, I think we're going to continue to to see this effect. Um, but, you know, again, this is another reason that it's such a relief to get back to work, not only for the actors and the writers and other people in television and film, but for all of the different workers that have been affected. Um, Zed, I read this really fascinating article in The Hollywood Reporter um, by uh, Rebecca Keegan, Alex Weprin, Lacey Rose, Leslie Goldberg, Pamela McClintock, Winston Cho, and Rich Rick Porter. So a very thoroughly reported article that focused on what is coming next. What are the five crises that Hollywood is potentially facing in the wake of the strike. And um, this was a fascinating read because I think that one of the things that the dual strikes have revealed is all of these pain points and vulnerabilities in the industry that had kind of been, um, you know, wallpapered 
over as we were chugging, chugging along. And now warts and all are on display. And as I was reading this list, it was just like one of the things that really struck me about this is just how obvious some of these problems are with the business. Like once you take, uh, you know, an even like cursory critical eye towards this. So I want to go through these five crises and, and hear what you, what you think about it. Um, the first one that the Hollywood reporter points out is streaming is a bad business model. Um, yeah, it's still like very unclear that anybody is going to make money off of streaming. Yeah, Netflix is, I think, the only one that hasn't been losing money over it. And their profits, I believe, have been decreasing mm -hmm. as they have saturated their their subscription. You know, people don't buy a new subscription. They just continue. And so you reach a saturation of the market where people either have Netflix because they want it or they don't have it because they don't want it. It's been around long enough. They know what it is. And you don't need to buy a new Netflix every few months the way that you do or, or years the way that you do other things in your life. Um, and other folks on the podcast have talked about these like silos mm -hmm. of, of, of Oh, I networks. talked about silo with Mike Bloom. I <laughs> Speaking of streaming, yeah. Sure, yes. <laughs> um, but how many of these services are you willing to pay for? And are, mm -hmm. if you only want to watch the one show, how long are you going to pay for it? I am I am an expert at watching a show and then canceling a streamer on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, because I'm just not I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have all 12 different platforms to watch one thing on Peacock and one thing on Apple TV. Yeah. And people are like, well, how did you watch them all? And I was like, I got a Netflix account for two months. I watched them all and then I canceled my Netflix account. So, that's, yeah, that's how you do it. But. You know, that's not a long term. It's a annoying for the consumer and not a long term business solution. And there is this saturation mm -hmm. of content that and when you're dropping an entire season of a show on one day and you only get buzz for that show for a week, what what is the actual value in it for the company? Yeah. Which is never what I care about. But if that if we're talking about you know, if we're the talking about a business being, of the yeah, model being yeah. viable, exactly. So up until not that long ago, Zed, there was Netflix and there was Hulu, right? And like on yeah. Hulu, you would go and like binge your old favorites that used to be on network TV, like you know, your friends' rewatches, your community rewatches. Yeah, and then Netflix it was a good place for a lot of like next day shows. If you didn't mm -hmm. have cable television, you could then watch it the next day on Hulu, which is um, still the case, but yeah. So, you know. And Netflix was, you know, always like it wasn't always, you know, the business model of Netflix was really subscriber based, which was different from all of the network television, which was ad revenue based. And um, Netflix got into the original content game. You know, that was one of their new innovations. And when they kicked that into gear and saw this uh, huge increase in profitability, uh, everybody panicked. Uh, Disney panicked. Um, all of these studios said, well, we don't want people watching what we have created on Netflix and Netflix getting 
rich off of that. So we have to create our interesting. Own you don't streamers. want other people getting rich off of the work that you mm, did. Wow. Curious. Imagine, imagine learning a lesson from that. Um, but <laughs> Everybody kind of got on the bandwagon of feeling like, oh, this is a place to make money hand over fist. We have to start our own rival streamers. And then what happened in 2018 and, and, and said, let me know if you've heard this one before. Wall Street began valuing Netflix like it was a tech platform. Mm. Not <laughs> um, we famously covered we crashed about we work and found a company that, that just declared bankruptcy this week. Amazing. Again, um, maybe that you know that that the tech the world of tech valuation is extremely uh is extremely vague and very different from so arbitrary. It's so arbitrary, it's like made up paper money. But once you actually introduce something into the pipeline that that involves like creating something with human labor, these tech valuations do not work because it will always cost something to build an office building or mm -hmm. make an original show. Like you cannot reduce your costs to zero and make it all profit. Anyway, um, this, this kind of ushered into this streaming wars era, which we're in right now. And like you said, there's so many different subscription services um this model of like paying what used to be you know 6.99 a month and is like rapidly becoming like 19.99 a month um to you know one streaming service where i could you know watch you know the the library i could see some cool original uh original properties um you know you multiply that by 5 or 6 and there's the it's not clear whether consumers can sustain that and these subscription costs are not covering the cost of doing business so um yeah in 2017 that's when disney pulled its content to netflix from netflix and launched disney plus um peacock paramount plus hbo max which is now max like the floodgates totally opened with a proliferation of streamers and as a result, tens of billions of dollars have been going into streaming content and away from linear TV, which means that these legacy me media companies that used to be making their money off of ad revenue on linear TV platforms are now losing money because they're investing in streaming, which has not, uh, which has not generated profits for them. So the question is whether streaming works as a business model at all. Um, and this is, I think, very, very much up in the air. And just as we've seen this proliferation of new streamers in the last few years, I think that we're going to see a lot of changes. And we already are. Um, you know, like I said, services that used to be like $6.99 a month are now, uh, you know, ballooning in costs. I just got a notification that Apple TV costs were going up. Um, these these ad-free platforms are introducing ad-free tiers now where like if you want yeah, ad-free. Max is not more. changing its price, but it is changing what I can email that it is changing what you get for the price that mm -hmm. you are paying. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's basically get, seems to be coming to a reckoning where they're trying to recreate the cable TV landscape now, only it's streaming, um, because streaming as a subscription-based business model is not working. 
Yeah, I didn't go to business school, so I can't solve that problem for them. But if you are keep if you keep seeing profit losses year after year, clearly you need to do something different. And I don't think charging people 200% more for the same product is the solution to that problem. Um, Disney Plus just bought Hulu. Uh, they bought out whatever the controlling stake was. And now Disney Plus owns Hulu on top of the many other properties that fall under the Disney umbrella at this point. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if your Hulu subscription is about to go up in price significantly also, or if there will be more crackdowns on password sharing the way that Netflix decided to do. Um, but it's just continuing to make the consumer experience worse. You're paying more right. and more money for a worse and worse product. And all of the user interfaces are bad. All of them. Oh no one gosh. has figured out how to the make UI a streaming platform so with a UI that terrible. is like functional and not infuriating. Zed, oh my God. Yeah, it's like I go on, I mean, I don't want to, I, I, I don't care. I'll call it. I mean, Max is so terrible. Like I can't get back to what I was watching. I can't start at the beginning of something. It's like, it, it drives me crazy. It's amazing that the UI is so bad. Um, but yeah, there. So so this is that's that's the first issue. What is the future of streaming? Is that business model viable? Second, big existential threat to Hollywood and uh, and TV. Peak TV, Zed. Peak TV. In 2022, there are 599 new scripted series. Wow. What like what? <laughs> what is that? No one, you, no one can watch all of those things. And They're so, sure, show recaps, fans. Zed, they want more. We're doing our best over here, but you know, even if there's fifty of us, we can't. We can't all be podcasting about ten or eleven shows at a time. I don't even yeah. know if that math is right, but that's. <laughs> It's too, it's too much. There's too much TV. People have been saying for years, there's so much TV. I can't keep up with everything. Like how many times does somebody say, oh, this new series on such and such is excellent. And you're like, I've never heard of it. That's great. I've never heard of it. And and actually like it's starring Meryl Streep or whatever. It's like, there's so much TV. There's so much TV. Um, This business model cannot continue to grow. We can't have more scripted series every year. I mean, there's, there, you know, probably one of the drivers of this is, as we said, with more and more streamers, they want to get buzz about new series, get more eyeballs um, on their particular streamer. So that's created this incredible, insatiable need to have more and more shows. But, you know, producing these shows comes at a cost and producing these shows that nobody is going to watch because the market is so saturated. There's only so much that fits in my eyeballs that um, it means that a lot of this is being left, you know, is is ending up, you know, not getting promoted adequately. I mean, I've heard a lot of um, people in the business, actors and writers say it's so frustrating when they work really hard on a show. And then one of these streamers like Netflix, you know, kind of lukewarm, like puts it up, it gets drowned out by other things and nobody ends up seeing it. Um there's there's just uh you know there's just too much supply and not enough demand. Yeah, even when something does have a lot of buzz, like a show like Wednesday, which I didn't watch, I'm pretty sure that was Netflix, and I don't have Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um 
got all this buzz, but people watched it for like two weeks and then they were on to something else. Mm -hmm. And part of what I think a lot of Post Show Recaps listeners, and I am certainly one of them, enjoy about the experience of watching film and TV is getting to talk about it with other people. Like part of the power of narrative storytelling or any storytelling is that you get to share an experience with other people and that generates conversations that like create connections. And if you missed the two weeks that people were talking about this show, you were going to watch strong possibility. You've moved on to something else. And it's, that's not a condemnation of the product of the show itself. It's an issue in the way that the market exists And now you want to watch the thing that people are talking about this week. And maybe one day you'll get back to that other thing, but you probably won't. Right. There's too many new things. There's too many new things. And it's like exactly like you said, like there's it's impossible to get that shared cultural experience of we're viewing something as an audience together when, you know, people are just overwhelmed with the option. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a fair bet to predict that the business will ultimately contract in this Hollywood reporter article. Um, the chairman of FX, John Landgraf predicts by 10 to 50% of a contraction, which, you know, I mean, look, if instead of 600 scripted series to watch, we only had 300. I think I would be able to live with it. Of course, this is going to affect the labor market. This is something that came up in um, my my interviews with Michael Chernis and Linda Powell, um, that it's possible that there will be less jobs. There'll be fewer op jobs available because um, we can't afford to make as many series. And making these series has provided opportunities for different performers and contact create creators to take more risks and try different things and provide, um, you know, tell different kinds of s- stories. And unfortunately, I think that that could be one of the casualties, not of the strike and of people being paid fairly, but the failure of these business models. Um, so, you know, this is interesting. I can definitely think that this is something that we'll be watching the contraction of the market in terms of new shows. Um, one of the things that I've, I found fascinating and I've mentioned this before is that like there was, um, you know, there was, you know, the premium TV revolution that started in the early aughts with, you know, the Sopranos and Six Feet Under and, um, and you know, Orange is the New Black becoming part of that. But like all of these like really, really excellent shows where TV actually became more of the kind of cultural leader in the art form than movies. Like it used it to be. It was taken more seriously, it felt like, for mm-hmm. the first time, at least in a long time, where it wasn't just, oh, well, it's the small screen. It's not the big right. screen. And therefore, it's not as relevant or it's not as serious or as highbrow as film, you know, which right. is this big project with these sweeping things. And you couldn't possibly put that on TV. And then HBO did a lot of putting that on TV, but it's yeah. not TV, it's HBO. It's HBO. Um, but like, you know, so that, and that attracted acting talent and directing talent and writing talent to TV in an unprecedented way. And and that was like the premium TV, prestige TV revolution. But like in the past 10 years, like there's been this creep that I've noticed and I've commented on it where something 
looks like prestige TV and is actually like not really the same caliber in some important ways. And um, it's been called premium light or mid TV or elevated broadcast. And it's like tricky because it feels like sometimes you can't tell just like at the outset whether something is going to end up being one of the the excellent next big thing or if it's going to be, you know, a little bit less of a satisfying experience. And, you know, you and I covered We Crash. And by the end of that, I was like, oh, I really had like high hopes for this with the subject matter and the acting talent. But there was just some, there's some bit of it, like the writing wasn't quite good enough or it wasn't quite. And, and, and I've seen that again and again, like, you know, uh, Melissa and Grace and I covered Shining Girls for Apple TV Plus and something that has all the veneer of like a fantastic show, but just wasn't as thoughtfully produced. It was like somehow churned out. It was like it was made to look like the thing and not actually be the thing. That was the experience that Troy and I had with Extrapolations on Apple TV Plus, which had Meryl Streep in it. Uh, among many other A-list stars. And, you know, Josh pitched that to us to cover. And we both like read the description of what the show was going to be. And we were like, oh, yes, this looks incredible. This is extremely the kind of thing we want to talk about. And then it was a very frustrating experience to podcast about that show for eight weeks. And mostly we just talked about like the real world politics and much Mm -hmm. less about the show itself because there just wasn't that much they're there to talk about for all of this A-list cast that they had in the show. Yeah. And, and so there's been a lot of that TV and like, and, 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 um, and this is like this area where I think that, you know, I would love to see, I, I, I would, I would love to see the focus on quality, not quantity. And I think that, that, you know, a lot of these streamers have done, some tricks where we see a cast or we see like a topic area and we think like, oh, this is going to be really good. But then it just doesn't have like the same kind of love and, uh, you know, deliberate thought put behind it. It feels like manufactured. It feels like this is something that came from a top down studio executive seeing saying, look, we need a Meryl Streep vehicle about this because that's it is like an ai generated idea of what a successful tv it does it feels that way and then it's like and the and the idea behind that is like you see that and you say oh i should subscribe because i want to check that out um so this premium light category is something that i think has been causing a glut in the market and um and and is something that uh you know that that is that is potentially uh you going to go by the wayside in the future. Um, In this article, they said um, things like, you know, going forward, studios are not going to be as quick to jump on new projects and not for mid-level co-executive producers and EP types. So um, top echelon producers will continue to command high salaries as long as they generate hits but those who haven't are going to get be in for a rude awakening um and the quote here is like if benioff and weiss's new show doesn't work nobody's giving them 25 million a year for their next deal and it does feel like there's been a blank check written for some of these producers to go forward and create these really high budget very very glossy 
series um, that are not necessarily connecting with viewers. Um, one of the things that I think is a real potential loss, though, in this contraction is that, you know, those quirky niche series that like that streamers have been willing to take a risk on, um, that those might also be things that get passed on. Like I loved seeing the party down revival on stars. It was like one of the highlights of like, Oh my gosh, it was like one of the highlights of the year for me. Um, I loved it. I got my stars subscription for five 99 a month. I watched it and I immediately, uh, I immediately got rid of stars and stars was willing to keep me for one ninety nine a month. Zed. They oh, were so the desperate. Desperation from these companies when you go to cancel things uh, is unbelievable. Yeah. They're like, wait, please, please, please don't go. I'll do please, your dry cleaning. Give us a yeah. dollar. Just give us a dollar and, and you can stay. Um, and then and then you do cancel and Netflix emails you once a week going, Zed, we miss you. It's like, I am not at a Netflix subscription in over a year. Leave me alone. Zed loves you. Uh, Netflix loves you so. Um, so, yeah. So this is, I think, potentially a risk here that we're going to lose some of that kind of edgier, more experimental type of, of programming. But I think that the market is definitely going to contract. Um other things that we've talked about quite a bit on this series is, um, you know, movie theaters are in an existential crisis right now. Um, we're seeing all sorts of new models for getting people in the seats, buying popcorn. Taylor Swift's concert, um, you know, that's like trying to create this kind of eventification of going to the movies again, because people have lots of things that they can watch at home. So there's not the same urgency to get back into theaters. And they also tend to know that if they miss the six weeks or two months that it's in the movie theater, so many things I intended to see that I missed, right. I'll then see ads when I, you know, turn on my fire stick. And it's like, you can watch this on Amazon Prime now, which I also don't have. But <laughs> All of these movie theater movies are yeah. already available on my TV before I even realize that they are. Um, I am an Alamo Draft House subscriber mm. because I can mm -hmm. go see a movie every single day for $30 a month. And a single movie ticket there costs about $20. Yep. Um, because that's not the ticket cost is not where these theaters make their money. It never has been it's, even before these the like, luxury. Soda. Yeah. Yeah. Even before the luxury cinemas like mm -hmm. Alamo, where you can get food and alcohol mm -hmm. at the theater. It was always the, the real revenue comes from the concessions, from the popcorn, from the soda, from mm -hmm. the overpriced. They're candy. literally selling you air and water for $15 in terms of the set. Yeah. So that's that's exactly the kind of model that Alamo has switched to. And they've been in a really rough shape since the pandemic, too. They had to sell a lot of ownership of their company to venture capitalists. Um, I read a big article about mm. this not that long ago. Congrats on your union, Alamo Draft House, oh, here in Brooklyn. Congrats and Manhattan and spreading elsewhere in the country. Um, but they, ha they have the loss, you know, they're counting on A, people having the subscription and not going, and they're mm -hmm. just getting a free $30, or people going and then spending money on food that they wouldn't have otherwise have spent if they had to pay for the movie tickets. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are not a disciplined person who can show up to a theater with food and just watch a movie, which I am, <laughs> uh, suddenly you're spending a lot of money at yeah. this theater that you wouldn't otherwise be doing. 
but it is it is a struggle when you know okay well if i don't spend 20 dollars now i can watch the movie for free or for the 10 dollars a month i'm spending for some other service at home in just a little bit uh and i see that in the hollywood reporter article the like photo at this at the top of the 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 movie theater part is a screenshot from killers of the flower moon, Mm. a movie Mm -hmm. I really want to see, but it's three and a half hours long. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a big problem. Like the, so what are the movies that get people into the seats? And like, you know, you mentioned a lot of great things there, Zed. You know, the pandemic, I think obviously like changed our movie viewing habits in a really transformational way where people are not as interested in going to the theater but and it's a little bit of a mystery I think that the industry is really trying to figure out like what gets people to go to the theater um it looks like movies catering to adults 35 and over are especially imperiled like these 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 audiences older audiences and maybe killers of the flower moon is, is going to be part of the market that's affected by that are not going to the theater for a variety of reasons. Nobody expected um, Mission Impossible to be as big of a hit as it was. Like, that was a big surprise. Um, Obviously, you know, Barbenheimer was like a huge boon for the film industry. But it's the Marvel movies are not the safe bet that they used to be in terms of filling filling seats. So um, theaters are trying to figure out what is going to get people uh, in the seats. Um, so, you know, Taylor Swift's concert, uh, movie, that was an event they're looking for. I think this kind of cultural urgency of creating, you know, this is something I want to see in the theater. And this is like what got my butt out to see Barbie. And I'm not a prolific movie theater goer, but the things that get me to the movies are, Something I can do with my kids to kill an afternoon. That's one thing. And the other thing is like, oh, I want to talk about this immediately. I don't want to talk about it mm. in three weeks. Like people are going to start talking about this and I want to be part of the conversation. I don't want to wait until I can order it on Amazon Prime. For sure. That's And that's so rare now. And I mm-hmm. think in film, it isn't even the same market saturation issue that we have with shows on streaming but uh you know you said it's a thing you can go do with your kids and i wonder if part of the issue is how expensive it is oh my god to go to the movies as a family of of four or more when the tickets cost 15 dollars no i mean it's no the the price like of going to i mean it's like i might we might as well like take a trip like i mean it's like it's almost like it's like a hotel room like of like would be and gas would be like almost equivalent to like i mean this is like a bit of exaggeration but like I mean, pop like like what I said. You're paying for water and air. Like they cannot give you a soda big enough for how much they cost. Like yeah. a five dollar soda is like you know it's it's mostly water, and then popcorn is like mostly air, and it's and they charge you like an arm and a leg for this, um, and then like you know I don't know like I you you. I can be a I can be like a mean mom and say like okay we're only getting this but it's like that you know there's this there's the slushies there's the candy like there's the whole thing they have the stupid like my kids want to do the claw thing in the lobby it's like so it's it, it you know movies as a family can end up uh, adding up to be pretty it's like a theme park outing is. just to go to a movie and then if and- you go to one of these Alamo draft houses yeah. like I'm also spending like. 
$15 on like a kid's pizza that's like a microwave stupid pizza. Right. Um, it's it's it, it can end up really, really, really uh racking up the costs there. Um, but it's clear that like that, you know, that movie theaters are not going to be able to remain open and we're going to see especially independent theaters have been closing for years a lot of them were completely done in by the pandemic i know in philadelphia a lot of my favorite independent theaters closed and um never came back um but i think we're going to see and i talked about this with ariel grace in our movies episode of this series is like what are different models for theaters to create these shared cultural experiences and events grace and i are covering the the curse which is uh nathan fielder's new project uh starring himself and Emma Stone um, that's on Showtime. And um, it's also being shown in theaters in some cities. Uh, every okay, I have been confused about this because I've seen ads for it on Hulu, I think, when I've been watching other things. Mm-hmm. And then I saw like a like a stand up big like poster for it in the movie theater. And I was like, is that not the same thing like yeah I guess so I was according like, oh, to movie oh it's a tv show no, Wait, so now it's i'm a very TV lost show. so according to grace um in toronto at least you can get a ticket that will cover weekly viewings of the curse so that's that you, fascinating you come on sunday night with an audience and watch the latest episode i think that's honestly really interesting that's like a cool way to get to watch mm-hmm. something with a group of people that i feel that feels like a slightly weird project to do that with but I think that's it, an interesting idea yeah it is an interesting idea and you know like we are very much a part of the RHAP community so we've like been to big theaters together Zed sitting right next to each other watching episodes <laughs> of Survivor so like the communal experience of viewing something with the fan community is like does provide, I think, a very special and unique experience. And at the time that you know, Grace and Ariel and I spoke about movies um, a few weeks ago, you know, we were talking about like, would you want to go like the 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 succession fandom, like who's so hyped about the next episode of succession? Again, a weird show for this model, but like, would they want to come and sit with other succession? I could certainly imagine Game of Thrones when that was airing, like yeah. being a great the- theatrical experience um, with a dedicated fan community, creating something more like what you see in the Marvel universe or with Star Wars, where it's not just I'm going and sitting to watch this movie. It's also like I'm communing with like a very dedicated fan community, um, which I think could be a way to revive theaters and really capitalize on what that shared cultural experience of movie viewing in a theater can provide that you just can't get uh, in your living room watching on streaming. Definitely. That is something that Alamo has kind of always done is mm-hmm. they will do screenings of older films, classic films, like cult classic films. Rocky Horror Picture Show right. is like one but of like, the, you know, streaming mm-hmm. or uh, screening Mean Girls on October mm-hmm. 3rd and like yes. having, they literally call them movie parties where uh-huh. they'll do sing alongs for like classic musicals that people know and love to bring together those communities. And 
I don't know how difficult it is to like, you know, get a copy of the movie to screen it at a smaller theater that isn't a big chain mm-hmm. like Alamo. But that certainly feels like I think what you're talking about is exactly right. The mm-hmm. community around the experience and how do we get that after we have all spent so much time like just sitting and watching things by ourselves yeah. at home because we didn't have another choice. Speaking of sitting things and watching them on our own, YouTube and TikTok are another existential threat to TV and film. Um, Zed, the people who watch TV, it turns out, are old. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never had cable myself mm-hmm. as an adult. I've never paid for traditional TV mm-hmm. in my in my life. Yeah. So outside, thirty three year old person. Yeah. So this is something that has definitely shifted in my t- in my lifetime. So I. I am old. I am an old. I'm 42 years old. Um, I had cable for a year in graduate school, and then I discovered pirate the Pirate Bay. Don't come mm-hmm. after me. I don't. I don't. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and and then I and then I cut the cord and have never gone back since. Um, the 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 people who get people who are paying for cable or watching broadcast television is an older audience and it's unlikely to get younger um outside of live sports a show on broadcast or cable tv draws less than 2% of adults 18 to wow. 49 the demographic that is most attractive to advertisers um and um if you look at streaming, it's uh, you know it's somewhat better. The user base is younger than that of traditional television, but the young people, the kids, are on TikTok and YouTube. And I told this to my husband, and he said, "I I mostly watch YouTube. Like aside from the shows that he and I watch together, like he used to have like his own shows that he would watch on Netflix, and now he mm-hmm. just watch watches sports highlights and chess strategy." on YouTube. <laughs> like that's exclusively what he does. Um but like TikTok users in the US um watch more than 80 minutes a day of TikTok scrolling through TikTok. That is wild to me. I I am also I've never been on TikTok. I don't want to get started on TikTok. I like experienced my friends getting really into it mm-hmm. in like late 2020 as we were allowed to start doing things again and a lot of our interactions became, "Oh my god, I have to show you this video." And I was like, "I cannot become a part of this." Um so I cannot relate to that and all I watch on YouTube is the British panel show Taskmaster. Uh <laughs> so I am not the correct I am not part of this audience of We're, younger people I mean, spending a lot you're, of time you're, on TikTok. You're, you're, you're much younger than I am. But like, I mean, this is this is what the future is moving towards. And I see yeah. it like my, my, we have like kind of strict screen rules in my house and my kids are not allowed to watch YouTube. Um, but I see in that generation of kids, like babies, like they are being raised on YouTube. Um, YouTube users spend more than an hour a day on the platform. And we have, you know, huge channels like Mr. Beast and Coco Melon with more than 100 million subscribers worldwide. Um, The biggest video game releases are out earning blockbuster movies like people Mm. are watching. They're filling their media diet with things other than broadcast television other than streaming. So the big media companies are completely out of this right now. 
Yeah. Well, these other options can be so much more tailored and curated to your own experience mm -hmm. than whatever happens, whatever CBS has decided should be on on Tuesday night. Is it Yellowstone? It's probably Yellowstone. It feels like <laughs> Yellowstone is on every single day. Uh -huh. um, the, the biggest show on television that no one I know has ever watched. Um, I think so that there's, I, I, I heard, oh, well, what did I hear? Like that there were like two kinds of like people, there were like the Yellowstone people. And then there was like another show, but it's like, there's like, it's like the red and blue America. And then yeah. like the Yellowstone is, is for one segment of the population. Yeah. I would also say YouTube's user interface much better than all of the streaming interfaces. Yeah. In my experience. Um, no, absolutely true. So, I mean, the, this is this is like the big media companies that dominate Hollywood. You know, they had this, you know, their business model is based on this idea of a captive audience. And um, the audience is now completely fragmented. There is no there is no captive audience anymore. Um, no single company has resolved this issue of trying to win that audience back. It's probably not. I mean, I'll say this is like, again, with all social media, you know, the change from one to many to many to many, that like paradigm mm. shift. Um, it has tremendous benefits and there's also, you know, great threats. And I think we see that in our fragmented social media. Like, of course, people can go through, you know, one of the things that I worry about a lot as a parent is how the YouTube algorithm can sort of shuttle people from one entry point that is relatively benign into a rabbit hole that gets very dark. So, you know, my, I have two sons and like, I see that it starts with sports or gaming and gets into misogyny and men's yeah. rights and like white nationalism and radicalization. So like, there is like this very great fear that without having any level of curation and with having an algorithm that is so potent at providing people with things that are going to be the most compelling, there is like a real concern about that fragmented media landscape and we see how it affects our politics. Um, there are like for children's programming again, and I'm like speaking from the parent perspective, um, there are requirements for children's programming that it has to be like not like it has to have a certain amount of content that is not just advertising and a certain amount of content that is educational. Like so there right. are some standards that like make even like the most mind numbing uh, child's program um, a higher quality than what kids see on YouTube, which is like sometimes like just real like complete valueless garbage like some like you know very crude like animation with like a voiceover and like extremely <laughs> sometimes like very like toxic stuff like in terms of like body image or like extremely like advertising forward type of content it's like it's it's not it's not good which is not to say there's nothing good on it of course but there's a lot of these um there's a lot of these corners of YouTube that are decidedly worse than anything that you can find on, on broadcast. And so I, I, I think that, you know, that there are some benefits in, you know, content creators being able to cultivate their own audience and provide something 
in niches that have been neglected by the traditional, you know, Hollywood studios. Um, but without any sort of regulations, um, there, it, there, there's a scary side to it as well. Yeah, this goes back to kind of what we were saying near the beginning of the podcast, talking about contracts and laws lagging so far behind mm -hmm. the reality yes. of technology and the media landscape and, you know, still referring to Netflix as new media mm -hmm. 20 plus years after it came into existence. When, yeah. When like people under 30 are no longer watching Netflix, even they're just watching TikTok. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's it, and part of that comes down to the demographic of our legislatures and who is in politics and and their lack of understanding around mm -hmm. these kinds of things. Um, but it is just that, you know, legislation moves slowly and technology yeah. moves really fast. And that is a completely different market. Um, you know, this may feel not super adjacent to where we started talking about the SAG-AFTRA contract, but it is all part of the shifting media landscape and how that impacts people who are paid to yeah. you know, act and write and direct and create television or other forms of media and the encroachment of these content creators. And, you know, I stream on Twitch. I am technically yeah. one of those people, but it is because the market is so diversified and so mm -hmm. vast, that's sort of a thing we've been talking about this whole time is how do you create sustainable careers for people who are choosing to work in this industry as the industry continues to shift so drastically? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, because there's, you know, there's all of a sudden all of these different options. There's lots of people who are working in an amateur space who are then like going to be, you know, very vulnerable to exploitation, um, themselves. And this is of course, undercutting a traditional labor market, just like Airbnb undercuts the uh, hospitality market, just like, uh, the housing market, shares, the housing, just like, just like ride shares have under cut the taxi service. So, I mean, again, it's like, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is very much a labor issue, even though it might seem like you said, said a little bit, uh, far afield. So, um, yeah, I mean, very, you know, this is, you know, very interesting. Um, I think that like, what, a, one thing I see is like, there's maybe two ways that this could go long term either it becomes something that the government like puts inadequate regulations in place which you know again could be good or could be bad or more likely a mixed bag mm -hmm. um or the other fear is that you know these tech companies like you know google and Facebook and these other that 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 eat up each other take yeah, that are not a pl news platform and not a publisher and mm -hmm. therefore don't have to follow any of these rules for like, generating that content because like, they're quote unquote just hosting it exactly and we're very vulnerable to these players like an Elon Musk coming in mm -hmm. and taking over Twitter and like changing something that felt throwing like, it in the dumpster and setting it on fire felt like a public sphere that was like not top down right. regulated that was like a very organic place where people were coming and sharing ideas and transforming it overnight. So like these are, you know, these are some of the things to continue to be aware of as consumers of media. Um, but that's that's kind of wrapping up our discussion of what has happened with the um, with 
the labor agreements and what we could look for next in Hollywood. Like Zed, I do want to kind of just look back on everything that um, we discussed over the course of this series, because I'm, I'm really like, I am so grateful to post-show recaps. I'm so grateful to Josh Wiggler for giving me this platform to talk about this. I feel like I personally learned so much over the course of all of the interviews I've done as part of Strike Up. Um, I got to talk to so many amazing people, and I really do encourage our listeners to go back and listen to those conversations because even though things have been very timely in terms of discussing the developments along the way in the labor disputes, um, there's a lot of evergreen messaging there. And in terms of like looking under the hood at what the careers of writers and actors and other entertainment workers is like, and looking under the hood of what the cost of human labor really is, has opened my eyes and I think made me a better consumer of media. And um, I, I just, I'm very proud of the work that we put out. And I think that um, it's 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 great to have that here. And I hope that listeners continue to get something from it. Yeah, I have learned so much from the conversations that you've had, Amanda, and you ask so many really intelligent questions and bring up such great points. And all of the guests that have been on have had such incredible insights into an industry that I thought I knew a decent amount about. And I and I do. And there, it is just so vast and there is so much to know. And so many things go into the creation of these, you know, of, of these products that we all enjoy and love. Um, that it has been really, really special to get to hear from people on the ground of the strike, but also in the industry in general, mm -hmm. talking about what it takes to create an episode of Survivor, what it takes mm -hmm. to be on an episode of Survivor, and to draw those connections between this industry and like the general society that we all live in. Like it was just last week, but Gabby Pascuzzi's conversation mm -hmm. with you was one of my favorites because creating that connection between, yes, we are talking about this strike and it may seem like reality TV is not impacted because it's unscripted, mm -hmm. but there are still all these people involved who work in the industry who are being impacted by these conversations and negotiations. And then relating that to being a graduate worker in a yeah. union and how so much of those struggles are the same thing. And that is true across so many industries, which is why I brought up UAW when mm -hmm. we last spoke and bring it up now. And why the second the, the strike was called is over, I saw people, you know, I saw famous actors and people I follow on Twitter going, Iatsi, you're next. Yeah. We will yeah. have your backs. Because yes. Iatsi workers were all completely sidelined in their work yes. too while these strikes were happening and they didn't win anything out of these contract negotiations because it wasn't their union they were just as impacted without mm -hmm. you know gaining the, the the things that we all gain out of a labor struggle always but no specific contract wins for iatsi mm -hmm. workers after being out of work for the same amount of time so just seeing the solidarity that has spread uh, from everyone you've talked to through all of the conversations that have happened around this industry and this struggle has been really, really inspiring and I'm so educational. And I said before, and said, will always say, I love labor organizing. I yes. love talking about labor rights and getting to hear so many people with so many smart things to say about so many different aspects of this really, you know, deep and complex and universal 
you know, experience Mm -hmm. has been really, really special. So it is, you know, so sad that it is, you know, exciting that it's coming to an end and sad that these conversations are coming to an end for now. But I am especially grateful to get to be here to wrap it up with you at the end. Thank you so much, Zed. And like one of, you know, one of the amazing guests that I had in the series was you representing the perspective of IATSE workers. That was fantastic. Um, We also had Naomi Calhoun come on the podcast and talk about various productions roles, a lot of which are not union covered. Um, Bram came on to talk about VFX and animation, like an extremely illuminating oh, conversation so cool. with for me because a lot of those workers are not covered by union protections. And some of the studios that do have unions only employ a very small proportion of their VFX and animation work with union covered workers. Um, We had our fantastic conversations with our different striking guild members, including writers, Chelsea Davidson, Frankie Butler, and Justin Shanes. Um, We also had members of SAG-AFTRA, including uh, Michael Chernis, a friend of the pod from our Severance podcast, <laughs> Linda Powell, who was on the negotiating committee, who is on the negotiating committee for SAG-AFTRA and has since I won election to be head of that negotiating committee. So look for that name in three years when they're back at the table. Um, and Mary Flynn, who was my guest talking about background actors, um, a really illuminating conversation there. Um, as you mentioned, Zed, we talked to people who represent reality television, uh, including Gabby Pascuzzi, uh, one of the players in Survivor, and also Molly Shock, a reality TV editor who provided a lot of really fascinating information about um, what those roles are. Um, and then we had some great conversations with experts in the field, including uh, Dan Schiffman, a professor at NYU uh, in computer science and an expert on artificial intelligence, um, and Paul Prescott, a labor organizer who at the time he appeared on the show had just won a great negotiating battle with the Teamsters. Um, Of course, we also had Grace and Ariel talk about movies. So um, a lot of great work there. I think a lot of it holds up. I encourage people to go back and listen to it. And like I said before, um, this is uh, the last best and final for now. For now, we're just like just like uh, the AMPTP. Um, we, you know, my fingers are crossed. Maybe we'll come back if there's other content to cover in the future. But um, until then, it has been a pleasure to bring you this coverage and a pleasure to speak with you, Zed. Thank you so much, Amanda. I just want to say to everybody out there. Uh, these conversations have been about the value of labor and what that means in this industry, but that is true across all industries, regardless mm-hmm. of what your job is. You deserve to be able to live and survive comfortably uh, as a human being, regardless of what work you're doing. So whenever people talk about this feeling frivolous because it's art, like mm-hmm. what did you do for the entire lockdown? You didn't watch any TV you didn't listen to any music. You didn't see any advertising. Um, all labor has value. And this struggle has been very specifically about one industry. But I think in general, the labor force has learned a lot about organizing from how public this struggle was. And I really hope 
that that just continues to spread. And I hope you all have learned, you know, half as much as I have in listening to these conversations. Uh, very well said, Zed. Um, so again, uh, bye-bye for now, um, but not forever. And until that time comes, so long.